This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations. And today we're coming to you from the 2009 AHA Annual Convention in San Francisco, California. And what a beautiful city. I can actually understand now why uh, Tony Bennett left his heart here. You know that, Wayne? It's a terrific place. It is a wonderful place. Well, today on Ringler Radio, we're going to be taking a look at the relationship between the legal profession and the medical profession. And uh, surprising to some of you, they're not always adversarial. We'll also be taking a look at misconceptions about medical malpractice and new developments in cerebral palsy. And we're going to do that with two special guests. Joining us today is Wayne Willoughby. He's a partner with the firm Gershon Willoughby Getz and Smith LLC in Baltimore, and with nearly two decades of experience representing the victims of medical mistakes. Mr. Willoughby has contributed significantly to numerous multi-million dollar recoveries. He's also the immediate past president of the Maryland Association for Justice. Well, Wayne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Well, also with us is a pretty special guest. It's He's Dr. Zev Gershon. He's the team leader at Gershon Willoughby Getson Smith, and he's been instrumental in the recovery of millions of dollars in damages for clients of the firm. And his reputation as a physician lawyer extends well around the United States and now well beyond because uh, Zev now lives in Israel. And he's coming to us uh, today via Israel. And uh, Zev, shalom. Hi, good morning, Larry. Thanks for having us. Well, thanks for joining us today. It's, uh, It's a pleasure having you on the show. Well, Wayne, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you're here at the AAJ convention and uh, and what's going on at the Maryland Association for Justice? Well, I'm here to um, renew some friendships and do a little networking, as they say, but more importantly, to uh, attend the wonderful seminars that AAJ puts on and become a better lawyer for my client by uh, continually being educated and learning what's new in the, in the profession. And as for MAJ, what's new for us is not really new. We, we're continuing to work hard to uh, represent the interests of injured people in the state of Maryland and uh, working with our governor to uh, fight against tort reform efforts wherever they pop up uh, in the state and working with Speaker Pelosi to try to keep a clean, uh, a clean bill on uh, health insurance uh, reform. Well, that sounds like a big plate, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Zev, uh, you're going to offer us a unique perspective uh, more than anyone on the show before, because you're also a doctor as well as being a lawyer. And uh, tell us a bit about that background and uh, which came first, the doctor or the lawyer? Uh, good question. I uh, went to medical school first, uh, graduated medical school. And frankly, during medical school, I was looking for another challenge. Uh, I found that uh, at least uh, where I went, medicine was a lot of memorization and, and frankly, not much thinking. And a uh, friend of a friend had me talk to a lawyer and uh, sounded interesting. And I went to law school uh, at night, actually, and worked for a law firm during the day helping to defend 
medical malpractice cases, and it, it was a puzzle. Each case is a puzzle, frankly, and you look at the medical records and you try to solve the puzzle. And then after I uh, graduated uh, law school, I had both degrees, and serendipity, uh, frankly, the defense firm I was working uh, in basically was doing cutbacks, and then I went to the plaintiff's side. And frankly, I've been working with Wayne ever since, and it's been a lot of fun. Well, that's an interesting interesting story. As a matter of fact, I think you're the first person that's ever to tell me that, I guess, medical school was a little too easy. That's pretty cool. <laughs> He's frighteningly bright, I tell you. <laughs> it scares me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let's start by discussing uh, the relationship between the medical profession and the legal profession. Are the professions at odds with each other? What's your perspective, Wayne? Well, my perspective is they are at odds with each other, perhaps unnecessarily. Physicians have this notion that lawyers are out there simply to try to sue them. And what they don't understand is if there's no malpractice, there's no malpractice suit. If you improve medical practice and eliminate errors, then you won't have to worry about people like me or Zev knocking at the door. What about uh, the misconceptions of, uh, that the medical profession has of the legal profession, especially when it comes to these medical malpractice issues? Yeah, good question. Um, I think really, if you sit down, because we talk to doctors all the time, because obviously to pursue medical malpractice cases, we need expert witnesses by law, and all those expert witnesses, frankly, are doctors. And so we talk to them all the time, and you know, and they help us out in the cases, obviously, if they feel... And they, that is the ones we use uh, as expert witnesses, they don't feel that there's, you know, they're at odds or anything. And, and, and any reasonable person, whether it's a physician, a lawyer, any profession, knows if there's a real case, a real malpractice case, the person should be, who's a victim, frankly, of that, should be compensated. And, and it's not a, called a lottery, but at the same time, it, it, you don't offer them, throw them a bone, throw them pennies. Just a fair and just uh, compensation. That's all we're looking at. I think the problem comes in where we're basically fueled by insurance companies, frankly. They, they, their benefit, they want an, an antagonistic, if you will, relationship between doctors and lawyers, and unnecessarily so. And, and if you, again, if you just sit down and, and reason with you and, and everyone can come to an agreement, yeah, this was an unreasonable mistake, and, and there should be compensation in those cases. Interesting. Well, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, some lawyers who are, steeped in this medical malpractice profession uh, and have been there for a while, I'm sure they turn down cases that come to them uh, because they don't feel it's, it's appropriate to, to take the shot at that doctor for that procedure. Uh, Wayne, what about that? Oh, absolutely true. And I tell my clients up front at the initial interview that uh, we're going to be totally honest with you. If we think that the doctor committed malpractice, was negligent, unreasonable, and caused your injury, we'll represent you, but we're not going to go and pursue a case against a healthcare provider if we don't believe that they were in the wrong. And sometimes it works out that you take on a case initially that you think is a good case, and then during the process of discovery, getting more information, and you learn, you know, this doctor did not act unreasonably. And we go back to our clients and tell them, we need to let this person go. So you feel perhaps they, the doctor didn't abuse that standard of care, let's say, that was appropriate for the procedure. But I think what some in the, in the uh, medical profession speak of is that same individual that left your office when you turned them down on, on representation, 
go somewhere else to to maybe someone who's not as experienced or maybe is a little more desperate and therefore maybe takes that case. Is that is that happening? Well, I can tell you in the state of Maryland that, that uh, we have a certificate of merit requirement. And what that means is in order to bring a medical malpractice case, you have to have a qualified physician, someone who's not intimately involved in the legal system, to certify that it's a bona fide case, that there is malpractice and the malpractice caused an injury. So if someone were to be turned down by us and go to someone else, two things could happen. One, the other person could go and review the material and come to the same conclusion of us. Or two, they could review the material and say, you know, Willoughby missed something here. Here's something he didn't explore that's valid. Now, I don't think this latter happens very often, <laughs> but uh, I know from our own experience, we've, uh, we've had many multi-million dollar recoveries that have been turned down by one, two, even three other law firms. But I think that I more attribute to Zeb's skill than mine. <laughs> well, that speaks to having that doctor on staff in, yes. in your law firm. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Maryland, uh, Wayne. There's a there's no cap on damages for medical malpractice. Is that true in Maryland, or what's what's the status of the tort reform issues there? What are they trying to do? Well, the, you know, your question about is there a cap? The answer is yes and no. Okay. Okay. The yes part is by statute. There's a cap on damages. But recently, there's been a case in our trial-level courts which found that this cap only narrowly applies to certain cases. And it's, uh, I think the reading of this statute is dead on, but uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure in the legislature this coming session to try to clarify that a cap does apply. Um, we're hopeful that we can fight off that legislation as the... Uh, case winds its way through the appellate courts in Maryland. Well, what are you doing, Zev, what are you doing in, as lawyers to educate the medical profession about the whole subject of medical malpractice? Do you, do you try to help the doctors get a better feel for what it is they should be doing through the efforts on the legal side? Well, uh, two things, uh, frankly. One, uh, both Wayne and myself, and, and I'm sure many other attorneys, believe it or not, occasionally get invited to lecture to healthcare providers. I remember I gave a seminar a few years back, and during that seminar, you can be sure uh, when you talk about medical practice issues and, and risk management, the doctors are all sitting up in their seat when a plaintiff's medical practice lawyer is talking to them as opposed to some hospital risk manager or defense attorney. I mean, this, the plaintiff's attorney, we're telling it like it is, and, and you know, I really don't mind. I, we, we've talked about this several times. You know, let there be no malpractice in the world. We'll find something else to do. Uh, you know, I, I don't wish there to be more malpractice in the, in the world. And so if, if through good medical practice, you know, less malpractice occurs, great. For example, uh, I mean, it was a few years ago, but uh, the anesthesiologists were really high up, if you will, on, on uh, paying insurance premiums. And then Lo and behold, malpractice suits forced them, in a way, we would say, willingly or unwillingly, to start the pulse oximeter, which actually measures the level of oxygen during anesthesia. And as a result of that, they were able to pick up problems earlier, and their malpractice premium shot way down, and less people were victims of medical malpractice. So I'd like to think we do some good, you know, even as a preventive thing, not only bringing the lawsuits, which is the other thing we do, frankly, when, when people are victims of malpractice and, and 
truth be told, when you bring a lawsuit, hospitals and doctors will change their practice as opposed to just, you know, writing a letter and, uh, and hoping that maybe some board of physicians in a certain state will, will act as opposed to just slap the doctor on the wrist. Well, when you can have a change of behavior, like you're mentioning, uh, that, that results in, let's say, anesthesiologists now having fewer issues and fewer problems, I mean, that's a real plus. That, that's the kind of uh, perfect result that we're all looking for, I guess. Well, one of your firm's areas of expertise, uh, I understand, is cerebral palsy uh, caused by birth injury. And I know it's a heartbreaking disability for parents uh, to, to see their children in that, in that condition. What, what are some of the new trends you're seeing out there when it comes to cerebral palsy? Zeb? Well, one of the interesting things out there, and, and again, thankfully so, uh, the type of cerebral palsy we deal with is basically those that occur during labor and delivery when maybe the fetal heart rate tracings are saying this, this fetus is in trouble and a doctor or a nurse is ignoring it or not even in the hospital. I mean, believe me, it, we've seen it all already. And unfortunately, there's a delay in delivery. And during that time, the baby gets lack of oxygen to the brain and ends up severely uh, affected with cerebral palsy and mental retardation and seizure disorders and the work and, and requires basically 24-7 care the rest of his or her life. And so one of the new things uh, that's come on the scene, not to prevent, not to prevent this hypoxic brain damage from because it happened, but to mitigate it and to contain it, believe it or not, a, there are several hospitals in the country that it's called the uh, cooling cap therapy, cooling to, to cool down the brain, if you will, with a cap that they put on the, the, feet of the baby's brain. Yeah. And as with any other injury, if you think about it, when you, in sports injuries, you put an ice pack on it to decrease the swelling. Well, the same thing that happens to the baby's brain, and they found out when they do this, these kids who, who suffer from lack of oxygen come out with some injury. Okay, but it's a lot, lot better than otherwise. That's, that's, a, new, that's a new wrinkle. I, I hadn't heard that. that. That's very good to hear. Well, for both of you, you're both advocates, obviously, for those who are diagnosed with CP, uh, and it, it seems as if your firm is right in the forefront of being helpful to the public as a resource. Tell us about what your firm does in the area of cerebral palsy victims. Are you an advocate for them in other ways? Well, we try to go and uh, support cerebral palsy organizations and to, uh, when we can, uh, uh, make donations and be involved with groups. Uh, uh, Zev and I have been... Uh, a few years back on a cerebral palsy telethon, actually, and uh, manning the phones. Wow. And uh, that was quite an experience. And we're always looking for new ways to support cerebral palsy organizations because it's, it's just the right thing to do. Absolutely. And it's uh, one of the things that every organization that deals with either a birth injury or some kind of a medical condition, uh, they're all out there trying to raise money. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the key for research and uh, Hopefully they'll uh, and and I don't even know. Zev, let me ask you this question: It's is it is any of the stem cell research have anything to do with cerebral palsy at all? We we you know we've had several clients that we've gotten multi million dollar awards for, and they have set aside some of that upfront money to pursue stem cell research. Uh, I don't have to tell you. I mean, it, it's in its infancy, and to my knowledge, there is no uh, patient with cerebral palsy who's gotten some stem cells and, and the cerebral palsy has improved. I, I just don't know of any such case. But it's, it's not hard to conceive that that may happen in the future. 
And I know we've had several clients who've put some of that money aside for research and also uh, to, it was an interview, I believe, at the place that does stem cell research to see if in the future their child would be a candidate for it. So, so people are aware of it, yeah. and it's just a question, you know, uh, we're at the cutting edge now, and it, and it will happen, I believe, in our lifetime. Well, that's a great example of how these funds that you're raising is gonna, are going to help uh, in the future. Well, can you share with our audience, our audience always likes real-life examples. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of the CP cases you've handled, uh, either a verdict or settlement, that, Zev, that you might uh, want to relate to the audience. Okay. Um, a couple come to mind. Uh, as you know, because of my medical and legal background, we also have uh, another partner of ours who's a doctor and lawyer, and another one's a nurse attorney. We review the medical records in-house first, and I, I remember clearly a, a case coming in of a child with cerebral palsy, and I want to say it was a premature child, and, and the child was in the hospital for many months, and, and it's very, very expensive to get records and everything, and of course, we pay for all that, and we only get reimbursed, if you will, with our fee expenses if we recover money for the client, which is fine. And in this case, I mean, it would have cost, I think, like 5000 because the child was in there so long, it was $5,000 record. So I initially requested what's called a discharge summary. And every, everybody, whether it's a child or adult, they, they send you a summary of the hospitalization. And this one came, and they summarized the hospitalization, and I read it over several times. And and frankly, it just didn't explain why this child was so bad off. I mean, people, they're, they're premature kids born all the time, and, and this kid was wasted. And there was really no explanation in the medical record. So I said, well, you know, there's, there's got to be something here. I don't know what, what it is. So I, I decided I went down to the hospital myself to look at the records. And we went down there and looked at it, and it took a long time, page by page, but buried in the medical record, interesting, but not mentioned in the summer of the hospitalization, this particular child got a 50-time overdose of theophylline medication. The nurse grabbed mm. one bottle to give one medication. Instead, she picked the other one, and she gave him a 50-time overdose of theophylline medication, which caused multiple seizures and brain damage. And and coincidence, they mm. didn't mention this event in the discharge summary. Wow. And uh, thankfully, I mean, it, it's just unbelievable, because frankly, most times people just ask for a discharge summary, you know, and, you know, don't bother with the, those, all those pages. And because we got that, obviously, we ended up filing suit and, and helped out that child, got verdict. That, uh, and, and that was gratifying, frankly, because I, 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 you know, I want to be thankful. I went to medical school. I'm not sure I would have picked that up without the medical background. Interesting. That's um, Larry, I want to follow up on that and just uh, emphasize one point. He said that he went through the records himself. What he ended up finding was not an entry in the nursing notes saying, oops, I screwed up. Right. What he found was a notation of how much of this medicine was administered in a box that was about not even a quarter of an inch by a quarter of an inch. He saw 50 milliliters. He saw 50. Well. Yeah. And he's like, that's not right. Mm. And it turns out that it not only did, did it just get buried and lost, in that particular case, we eventually, through a court order, obtained the hospital's incident report. They knew about it all the time. The hospital knew about it and just didn't tell the patient and buried it. It, it was not just, uh, it wasn't just the nurse burying it. It was the institution hiding it from the patient. And that's when I get very angry when the healthcare provider goes and not only commits malpractice, but then won't tell the patient 
and do the right thing. Well, you almost sound like Paul Newman in The Verdict. That's uh, <laughs> it's, it's got that connotation of, uh, you know, uh, distortion on the medical record and uh, causing real pain. Well, let's take a quick break right now, and uh, we'll be back right in about a minute or so uh, with our special guests, Wayne Willoughby and Zeb, Dr. Zeb Gershon. This is Ringler Radio. Legal information, trends, and topics from Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 140,000 cases structured. This is Ringler Radio. From Ringler Associates, placing more than $20 billion in structures over the past 30 years and one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. This is Ringler Radio, celebrating three years on the Legal Talk Network with topics important to the legal community. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to Ringler Radio. It's free. Did you know the number of listeners to Ringler Radio doubled in 2008? Thanks to our loyal listeners, and welcome to all our new listeners as well. Well, welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you joined us. I'm Larry Cohen, your host. And we're here at the AAJ 2009 Annual Convention in San Francisco with our special guests, Wayne Willoughby and Dr. Zev Gershon, both from the firm Gershon, Willoughby, Getz, and Smith, although Dr. Zev Gershon is in what I would call a branch office. <laughs> He's coming to us from, uh, is it Bet Hashem, Israel? Beit Shemesh. Beit Shemesh. Beit Shemesh. Well, anyway, it's uh, a lot further from Baltimore than, uh, than you might think. Well, Zeb, with your experience in both professions, of both the legal and the medical profession, what needs to happen within the legal system and the medical world to really, inf- to really foster better communication and uh, changes from within? Well, I, I think communication is the key. I, I think if, if physicians and attorneys, uh, frankly, both of it would sit down and, and I think they would see that we agree a lot more than we disagree. I, I think there are certain maybe gray zones, if you will, and, and maybe those cases uh, truly are for juries to decide, if you will. There, there's no question about it. But but other cases, instead of um, the tremendous amount of money that insurance companies are spending to deny even the most obvious malpractice cases, if instead physicians can, can speak to lawyers and they can all agree, oh, this case, yeah, it's obvious, or this case is obvious, let the money go to the patient instead of the defense insurance company. And I think that would be a win-win situation. It'll bring insurance defense costs down, and there'll be less, if you will, distrust between the physicians and the attorneys. Well, I, I think that's what we're all working for here. Wayne, what about working side-by-side, side, both professions, trying to eliminate some of these differences and, and cause, you know, as you talked about before, the real positive changes, the, the change of behavior of certain hospitals and doctors, et cetera. How do, you, how do you get those professions working together? I'll be honest with you. I'm not certain how you do that because there's such a distrust on the part of physicians in dealing with lawyers on a global basis. There are individual physicians who, who, are, or who are willing to work with lawyers, but in a, 
in a perfect world, what we do is we just sit down and look at claims together over a course of years and try to identify where do the claims arise and what are the factors involved. And then the doctors have to go and establish best practices. What should have been done to avoid this claim happening? And then educate their own members to, um, to adhere to the standard of care and to adopt best practices to avoid, uh, to avoid uh, the bad outcomes that result from uh, negligent care. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that I was, I was lecturing at uh, Johns Hopkins Medical School back uh, uh, about a year ago. And uh, I was telling the students about obstetrical negligence issues. And lecturing with me was uh, an obstetrician who uh, stopped delivering babies. And uh, he blamed it on lawsuits and whatnot. But during a break, I was chatting with him and, and uh, learned something uh, rather interesting. And uh, when we went back on, so to speak, I brought it up and said, you know, uh, Dr. So-and-so and I are here talking to you today, but I'm going to be honest with you. I think even Dr. So-and-so would admit that if doctors in Maryland were paid appropriately, we wouldn't be here today. The real issue here is physician reimbursements in the state of Maryland are in the bottom 25% in the whole nation. Doctors who used to get paid uh, $3,000 for a normal ba- a normal delivery, catching a baby, as they say, now only get paid $1,500 for catching that same baby in Maryland. Uh, for a complicated delivery, they used to be paid around, I believe it was 4800 and now they get about 2500 for a complicated delivery. And what's happened to physicians, again, in Maryland is that their, their nominal income, not forget inflation, their nominal income has decreased by 50% while their insurance premiums, like all expenses, continue to go up and up and up. The doctors are being squeezed. So, it's a disincentive on that. For, it's a disincentive yeah. to deliver babies because they have to go and find other procedures. Some obstetricians are doing Botox because that's cash and carry. Mm-hmm. They'll do injections, anything that they can go and and get green cash for not have to deal with the insurance industry. Interesting. Well, you know, that brings us to the whole area, this whole concept of uh, payment for doctors. And I have talked to many doctors who, uh, they don't have quite the enthusiasm for it they, they had in the past. And so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the whole hot button issue right now of healthcare reform. You know, some are arguing, and you've heard this, I'm sure, that it is the medical malpractice litigation that forces doctors to uh, engage in excessive or expensive and maybe unnecessary testing for diagnostic testing and procedures. What's your answer to that? How do you how do you answer that concern that's being raised around that? Because I hear it all the time. The myth of defensive medicine. It, you do hear it all the time. And the truth of the matter is there are no studies that have demonstrated that defensive medicine is a significant factor in healthcare costs. Right now, they're circulating around Capitol Hill this notion that defensive medicine costs $210 billion a year. That comes from an, a single source. It's a, a, a PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, uh, study that was performed on behalf of an insurance group, and its sole source is a Department of Human uh, Health and Human Services study that was conducted during the Bush administration. And the first page of that study says right there that the opinions expressed in here are those of the authors and do not represent the position of Health and Human Services. That tells you something. Yeah. That study, in turn, was based solely 
1996 report by these two authors. It's been discredited. What's happened in the, what, what was ignored through all this process is that the Congressional Budget Office and the uh, Government Accountability Office have both issued studies saying that defensive medicine is a nominal cost at both. And that, uh, I believe it was a CBO study that said most defensive medicine can be explained more so by the physician's desire to increase their revenue than by fear of litigation. Well, you know, and Zev, that brings us right back to what Wayne spoke of before, the obstetrician that said, you know, he used to get, you know, $1,500 to deliver the baby. Now he's getting, let's say, $500 to deliver the baby. That's not going to That's not going uh, improve. Th- those, those remuneration numbers are not going to improve under any new healthcare system. In fact, they probably are going to go down. So how do you, how do you balance controlling healthcare costs, which potentially results in lower payments to doctors and having doctors get enthusiastic about doing those kinds of things you're talking about? I, I really can't answer how doctors can get enthusiastic about uh, medicine again. I mean, I, we're lucky. We're enthusiastic in our profession. And, uh, you know, I went to medical school because I wanted to help people. And, in fact, I'm helping people now in a different way. And uh, if remuneration is the reason why physicians went into medicine, I think it's a wrong uh, career choice. Uh, that's Interesting. For sure. I will I'll address those, something you said earlier about defensive medicine, and it may be out there, but I will honestly tell you, and I've reviewed many, many medical records of many, many clients, and you know, only a small percent of cases to pursue because many of these cases, there is no malpractice. We tell clients that. I, I really haven't found many cases. I haven't found hardly any, maybe on one hand, where you could say, oh, the doctor did this test because of defensive medicine, or he did this procedure because of defensive medicine. Frankly, in, in, in all the CP cases we're doing, frankly, we wish they practice, you know, if it was, quote, defensive medicine, and do the C-section when the fetal heart rate tracing was showing that the baby's suffering from asphyxia. Right. If only they would practice defensive medicine, but it's not a happening. Well... I think on that interesting thought, I think we're going to bring this uh, show to a close. I'm uh, intrigued by some of the things you both have said, and I think it's going to provide some fodder for some further discussions and some further shows. So uh, I want to thank you both for joining us. And Wayne, uh, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Well, we have an 800 number, or an 866 number, toll free. And it's one 866 4 Doc L-A-W-D-O-C. Well, that's pretty good. That's clever. And and Zev, how do they reach you over there in Israel? Well, they they can call the office also, and then they'll just patch me through. It's, but we also have a toll-free number here, 866-841-0314. But the one Wayne gave, uh, 866-452-9362, as he said, for law doc is great. Well, that's good. And I'm sure you're, you're probably going to be getting some calls uh this is a very fascinating show, and uh, I hope our listeners really enjoyed it. Well, in case you're a first-time listener, you should know that every one of the Ringler Radio shows can be downloaded from our website, ringlerassociates.com, or on the Legal Talk Network at legaltalknetwork.com. Or you can even play them uh, from iTunes and put them right on your iPod, and as you're jogging around the, uh, the park, you'll be listening to, uh, to Wayne and Zev. All right, well, with that, I want to thank you all for listening. Now go out from the AAJ Convention in San Francisco. Go make it a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. 
Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Prudential. 